This is Asia in Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of Asia in Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from our experts in Asia Pacific on the issues that matter most to businesses. Hi, everyone. This is Angela Mancini, partner at Control Risks, and I lead the Asia Pacific Markets team. In today's program, we're going to focus on Malaysia following the imprisonment of the former Prime Minister Najib Razak. This is an issue that's been making headline news for years, literally, and more recently as well because of the 12-year jail sentence that he just got. It's notable. It's the, Obviously, he's the first prime minister, former prime minister in Malaysia to actually go to prison, which is a mighty fall for someone that was in power for so long and who actually comes from a family of prime ministers, his father and his uncle. And the scandal tied directly to him is not just a personal blow, but it's really impacting the reputation of his political party, the United Malays National Organization, or UMNO. And there's talk of an impending general election as well. So there's obviously there's short-term interests that we're hearing from clients related to the issue and what it means for their business operations, but then also what these developments might imply for the future of the business environment there from a corruption point of view, from a contract risk point of view, from an FDI attractiveness point of view. So we're going to go through all those points today in a really good discussion about Malaysia. The attitude towards investing in Malaysia cannot be wait and see anymore, even as political instability continues. You factor the risk, seize the opportunity, otherwise it will be a long time before stability comes back to Malaysia. That was Harrison Chang, Director of Control Risk, who has long followed changes in Malaysian politics. Some may follow his writings on LinkedIn. And Harrison, to kick us off here, let's start with this 12-year jail sentence. Many people said they never thought that would happen. It is happening. It's been a surprise to some. And, you know, obviously, as we've just said, there's there's implications, quite significant implications for the broader business community in a market that's quite large for Southeast Asia and that a lot of clients across a number of sectors are heavily invested in. So let's start though with the case. What Can you please talk us through the incident and what's really going on? Thanks, Angela. So essentially, the 12-year jail sentence was related to um, a conviction that Najib received in 2020 over a case relating to SRC International, which was a a former subsidiary of 1MDB, the sovereign wealth fund that was engulfed in scandal uh, over the past few years. And essentially, uh, Najib had appealed to the Court of Appeal and uh, the Federal Court uh, from 2020 to 2022. And in August, the Federal Court eventually dismissed his appeal. um, And that meant that Najib no longer could enjoy that stay of execution. He had to start serving his 12-year jail sentence as well as pay a fine. And so what Najib didn't really count on, which made this entire episode possible, was the downfall, obviously, of AMNO and BN uh, after ruling for decades. Uh, in 2018, the historic general election paved the way uh, for Najib to then be charged over the SRC case in 2018. And subsequently, again, another factor that enabled this outcome was that Najib's administration was succeeded by three administrations that were unfriendly to him. First, the opposition led by Mahathir, the former prime minister. Second, by Muhyiddin Yassin. And finally, the current prime minister, Ismail Sabri Yaakob, which interestingly comes from AMNO, the same party as Najib. But 
is currently on a rival faction of, of Najib and therefore has no incentive to help Najib in that case. And so essentially, Najib is now faced with the jail sentence. He's currently going for a royal pardon. He applied for it early this month. But based on what we are seeing, we think the king is going to be really careful about issuing such a royal pardon for two reasons, quickly. First, the fact that Najib still faces charges over other 1MDB cases that have yet to complete their trials. And secondly, the ruling against Najib's appeal was really seen as symbolic of you know, judicial independence in Malaysia and the lack of political interference in this current ruling. And the king would be careful, you know, would likely be careful about sort of going against that kind of public sentiment because the appeal being thrown out was actually widely received and welcomed as favorable for the public, for civil society and for the opposition, which has long been talking about better governance standards in Malaysia. So what you're saying is the jail sentence is likely to hold. The chances of a royal pardon are slimmer maybe than some think. And indeed, it's been seen as a bit of a watershed moment for the judicial system. So there is pressure there not to overturn it. But I guess more broadly, you know, let's talk about what that means for the political situation in Malaysia. And again, as it relates to client operations, because you have UMNO who's been in power or was in power for decades was out of power for a couple of years, is now in power again. And, you know, a prime minister, former prime minister from their party is now actually going to jail. What does this mean for UMNO and political stability? And I guess more importantly for listeners, how is that going to affect potential business and investment decisions? What might we see in the immediate term here? So essentially, Najib still has quite a bit of clout in UMNO. And so the impact of Najib going to jail probably has some uncertain impact on the outcome of the next general election. But what it concretely means is that there is a higher risk of snap elections being held within this year, actually, because the current prime minister actually doesn't want to hold snap elections. But Najib and the current AMNO president, Zahid, uh, want elections to be held as soon as possible because they are pretty confident that AMNO can do really well. So what it really means for businesses is that they can probably expect elections to take place before December, probably in the October-November region. And with the change in government, with a change, possibly a change in prime minister, it's not clear Ismail could hold on to power that much longer if Amno wins by a large margin. Uh, what it means is that there are going to be questions about policy continuity in certain sectors, not, not broadly across, you know, maybe not in manufacturing, which is a long-established sector for Malaysia, but potentially in the digital sector, for example, on 5G policy, which has changed several times across the past few years as there have been changes in administration. In foreign investors that are involved in um, large-scale infrastructure projects, state-led projects in oil and gas or in other critical uh, sectors, could see uh, contract reviews, could see negotiations as the state tries to secure more benefits for Malaysia, for local communities, for example, to try and you know bolster their, their electoral strength. Uh, and so these are some of the kind of business-relevant implications that we are likely to see. That being said, uh, AMNO is still probably going to retain power, given that they're still the most recognizable party that caters to the interests of the ethnic Malay majority. But what is less clear is that whether they would necessarily be able to form a stable government. So currently, AMNO really doesn't have a large number of seats and they need to rely on the support of two of their other coalition partners to gain a simple majority. But the problem is that AMNO is hardly on good terms with both of them. 
uh, which is why there is that uncertainty. On the other side of the parliamentary aisle, you have the opposition. The opposition, unfortunately, has not been able to really build up its political clout, despite being in power from 2018 to 2020. A large part of the conservative sections of society still do not really trust the opposition. And so, really, it's Amnos to lose for this election. But if the opposition really does manage to come back to power, possibly because of you know how Najib's jailing might have uh, created that kind of optimism in Malaysians, that you know if the opposition comes to power, they could see more of such changes, then I think for investors, they, the idea of policy disruption would be even higher because the opposition has shown a clear focus on, for example, environmental impact. So you know for projects that could be seen as environmentally damaging, impacting local communities and livelihoods, there is likely to be more scrutiny on such uh, environmental issues. And this is relevant when talking about the current sort of supply chain situation around the world where there's a lot of focus on local mining and processing of raw materials such as lithium, which are really key for the EV industry, which obviously is on a rise in most places in Asia. And so these are some of the things that we're looking out for. Okay, so in thinking a little bit more about the implications of the case, I mean, obviously with the 1MDB scandal, that hit headlines around the globe. And Malaysia has not historically had a reputation of really clean governance. And that really, the 1MDB scandal and the corruption trials that followed, you know, really tarnished even further, I think, the reputation for Malaysian corruption. What does this now mean for corruption and governance standards going forward? Are we having some clients look at the market now and say, okay, this is a watershed moment. This means that independent institutions are being strengthened and Malaysia is now finally on a better trajectory as it relates to clean governance and thus it'll be easier to invest in. Thanks, Angela. I wish it was the latter, but really Najib's jailing is just the first step in a long journey towards improving governance standards. There is currently a movement towards anti-corruption, cleaning up the governance system, but I would caveat strongly that this fragile equilibrium is only made possible because of dovetailing political interests, especially between the Prime Minister Ismail and the opposition. And whether this is going to hold in the next few months, let alone years, is really a question that we can't really answer directly at this point. The reason being that there are so many variables that are uncertain, whether AMNO will win strongly, whether Ismail and AMNO itself will be able to clean up the party's reputation. And so I think the, the best outcome for Malaysia is paradoxically not so strong AMNO victory at the next election, which means that Ismail would still have to rely on the opposition to create basically bipartisan support for many of the political and institutional reforms that relate to the anti-corruption agenda. And so if this actually continues, you know, and Ismail does have a fighting chance, we could probably see Malaysia getting on that trajectory. But it would take quite a number of years for businesses to actually feel the implications on the ground. We'll return to the conversation with Harrison in just a moment. Um, please do click on the podcast notes below if you have um, an interest in learning more about our opinions on the Southeast Asia market. We also have podcasts that we've uh, produced recently on U.S.-China tensions as it relates also to Taiwan and on Southeast Asia more broadly. And we, we just did one recently on Vietnam. So please do visit the Our Thinking section on our website 
for more uh, in-depth analysis from our global analyst desk or for podcasts as well, um, similar to this one. And so for now, let's continue the conversation. Harrison, let's turn away for a moment from the discussion about Najib's imprisonment to the broader issue and discuss Malaysia's business environment. We have seen here at Control Risk uh, an uptick in the last two years of actually um, business intelligence due diligence for uh, clients that are looking to go into that market or expand in areas of healthcare and education, um, even private equity funding VCs. There's been an interest, as you know, in the digital space. You mentioned 5G earlier, even though that's had challenges on the policy side. But we've also had quite a lot of cases we've uh, done for clients as it relates to fraud and corruption, having to do asset traces and you know, on working on the dispute side. So it's definitely a, an attractive market in the region, but not one without its issues, as we know. FDI in Malaysia is actually uh, up quite a lot compared to last year. There was over $10 billion of net inflows of USD going into Malaysia in 2021. Compared to last year, that's a spike. But it's interesting, we don't hear a lot about Malaysia in the press or in investor circles like we hear investors talking about Vietnam, of course, or Indonesia, or as companies are thinking about a China plus one strategy or diversification across Southeast Asia, Malaysia doesn't get spoken about as frequently. And I'm wondering why you think that's the case. And are there specific sectors in Malaysia that maybe investors need to be paying more attention to, some winners down the road that we can be thinking about? Uh, What do you make of that? Yeah, thanks, Angela. So I think Malaysia is seen as uh, credibly a mature market similar to Thailand within Southeast Asia. And so it's seen as less attractive because it's not growing as fast as Vietnam, as Indonesia is, uh, as the Philippines. And so that could be one reason why Malaysia isn't top of the of the chain. Labor costs are also higher in Malaysia compared to Vietnam, compared to Indonesia. And so that's maybe another reason. There are also long-term issues with the education system leading to gaps in skilled labor in certain sectors. And currently there's a massive labor shortage affecting key sectors like manufacturing, palm oil, which are currently left unaddressed largely. You know, the the rate at which government is approving foreign worker permits is extremely slow. And that has been an issue that has continued through end of 2021 up till now. And so there are many questions that foreign investors would have when they think about Malaysia. I think obviously the political chaos dominates the headlines, you know, internationally, domestically, and so that's going to be the first thing people are going to look at. And when they compare to a, you know, sort of a one-party state in Vietnam or in Indonesia, where there is some political competition, but because of that grand coalition, there is also quite a bit of political stability. Malaysia can't compare, especially with three changes of administration since 2018. So I think those are the reasons why Malaysia doesn't get as much attention, as much love. And this is a bit regrettable in the sense that it negates the sort of the underlying strengths and obscures those strengths that which first propelled Malaysia to the top of the FDI chain. So it's very established in terms of logistics and transport infrastructure, which obviously creates a manufacturing for export base. But I think Malaysia is catching up in the digital space, especially with the what we see to be the first steps towards really concretizing its 5G policy finally since 2018. And there's a movement towards expanding the digital economy, increasing the use of cloud services, especially with the government taking a lead in this and encouraging private sector to jump on it, a movement towards high-tech manufacturing, 
And to your question, Angela, about what are some of the sectors that investors should actually now be looking at much more actively? Data centers, that's one thing. We've seen clients ask more questions about entering this sector for Malaysia. I think, uh, especially for Johor, which is in close proximity to Singapore, where many of our clients have data centers, I think that's one key area to look at, not just Kuala Lumpur, where currently a lot of data centers are concentrated in. The second one is really renewables and especially solar. People watching the renewable space would not have missed the June announcement by US President Joe Biden on tariff-free access for solar panel panels that are manufactured in four Southeast Asian countries, including Malaysia. And so there is that potential for companies to, to enter the renewable space in solar panel manufacturing. And I think the third is really fintech. So Malaysia is also pioneering quite a lot of fintech innovation, digital payments. The adoption of e-payments in Malaysia is actually quite significant. E-commerce is booming over there. And so I think given that the regulators there, number one, are quite progressive in their thinking, Bank Negara, for example. And secondly, the regulatory oversight of the fintech sector is relatively untouched by the political instability over the past few years. And so I think fintech is one sector that's sort of insulated and in a way progressive. And I think that really gives investors quite a lot of opportunities to think about. Very interesting. And you outline quite a number of sectors that, again, people talk about quite openly as it relates to other markets, but not as much as it relates to Malaysia. But indeed, what, what you're saying aligns with what we've been seeing from investor interests as it comes to our own work. Last question, I'm conscious of time, so we'll keep it short. What are the key challenges you see for investors and operators in Malaysia now? And what more practically can they do if they want to go after some of these opportunities? What do they need to be aware of? Thanks, Angela. So I think for many investors taking a wait-and-see approach, they should be questioning, like, is there really a perfect time to enter the market? And I think the short answer is no, because political stability is not going to come back to Malaysia anytime soon, within the next two or three years. I don't think so. So I think if you want to enter, you should Think about entering as soon as possible. and But what you need to do is to enter with some kind of wisdom, right? So figuring out the stakeholder climate, understanding who are the key players in the political system, in the key regulators and bureaucracies, and try and understand who, which, of these are, who, which of these players are likely to stay around even though there is going to be a transition in power. And that will really strengthen the kind of government support you can expect for your market entry, expansion plans, supply chain relocation, for example. The second thing is really a renewed emphasis on due diligence and especially due diligence that stretches further into the past than before. Why I say this is because there's a current ongoing parliamentary and media controversy around the procurement of several littoral combat ships by the former AMNO government all the way back to 2011. And if you think about that, that's more than a decade ago. And... This is being dredged up and being allowed to play in, you know, in the public theatre in a way because it actually benefits the current Prime Minister. The key person implicated in this scandal is his rival in AMNO, Zahid. And so you can think about as AMNO continues to experience infighting, there's going to be a stronger incentive for political players to dredge up past cases, even those implicating the people in their own party, simply because it serves their political interests. And so you've got to think about Given that AMNO has been in power for so long, what sorts of exposure you know, are your local partners possibly going to have? And how would that then reputationally and reputationally impact you as a response? And finally, I think with all the flux politically, you've got to look at the regulations uh, that support your sector 
and think about how are the formal regulations actually going to change in the next few years? How will political changes affect the regulations in your sector and trickle down to affect, for example, your access to incentives? And what are kind of best practices that the private sector, your competitors, your fellow industry players, what are they doing to sort of address these regulatory gaps in order to ensure compliance, but also to ensure that you are not caught out by any kind of enforcement measures that the government might take. So I think those are really the key challenges and some concrete recommendations how to address them. Very interesting. Thank you, Harrison. That was a great discussion. I mean, in some, what we hear you saying is indeed, Najib doesn't have an easy way out, but that his fortunes are not tied entirely to UMNO's fortunes. And as we expect to see a snap election going forward, UMNO will most likely win that, albeit by less of a margin. So in in some ways, then calling for or expect to see more bipartisan support for institutional reforms, which would be great for the country. And so what that then means for investors is to really, you know, don't overlook Malaysia. What we hear you saying is, you know, get out, stop doing the wait and see and actually start looking at it now, especially in some of the sectors you mentioned, like renewables, cloud and data centers, fintech, e-commerce related sectors. But it, But again, given the politics and the fact that that may likely spill into business issues like incentives and policy and contract risk and who's your partner to make sure that anyone going in or there now and expanding is looking carefully at who their stakeholders are, what regulations are coming down the pike and how they can mitigate any enforcement challenges or policy changes that may impact them. So that's great. That's a really helpful for us all to understand, Harrison. Thank you so much. It just leaves it to me to thank you for your time and thank our listeners for tuning in today to our Asian Focus. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to our podcast channel so you can receive all new episodes just as soon as we release them. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of Asia in Focus, be sure to subscribe and make sure to check out our other podcasts as well. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.